0: We're up to chapter 4, Mishnah 2, a short but very powerful Mishnah. Ben Azai Omer, Ben Azai says, You should run to do even a minor mitzvah and flee from sin. And in some of the uh, texts of this Mishnah, it adds a few words. You should run to a minor mitzvah as you would for a stringent mitzvah. Uh, our version of the text does not have that, but the, the idea is the same. Run to even to a minor mitzvah. Don't just say I'm going to do the big mitzvahs. Just you know, just just the ones that really matter. The minor ones we could ignore. No, you do run even to a minor mitzvah, and you should flee from sin. She mitzvah doreras mitzvah because one mitzvah brings in its wake another mitzvah. Va'avera and a sin doreris havera, and a sin incurs begets another sin. Shezchar mitzvah, mitzvah, for the reward of a mitzvah is another mitzvah. vera, avera, avera, and the reward for a sin is another sin. So that's the teaching of Benazai. He's going to be the author of this Mishnah and the upcoming one. And let's talk a little bit about this very interesting character from the Talmudic era. We actually mentioned him last week when we talked about Benzoma, which was the author of Mishnah number one. Both of them were called Shimon, Shimon ben Zoma, Shimon the son of Zoma, Shimon ben Azai, and they were colleagues, they were friends, and they had some overlapping uh, life experience, and they are present in the same era, this is again in the, the end of the first century, beginning of the second century era, uh, both of them were at a transition period, students of the previous generation and kind of colleagues, but students of the succeeding generation. So we have, of course, Rabbi Yosho, we've mentioned him numerous times. He's one of the uh, titular heads of, of the Academy of Yavne. These are his students, but also his students and his most famous student, Rabbi Akiva, they were also kind of colleagues slash students of Rabbi Akiva. And Benaziah appears all over the Talmud, uh, and I want to go through some of the more memorable teachings that he had and debates that he had and stories that are told about him to get a little bit of a flavor of, of his persona and his, and his character. Maybe the most interesting debate that he is present at is found in the book of Yavamo's page 63B. And the debate over there is about the importance of procreation, of having children. How important is it? So it brings a three-way debate. One opinion says, it's very, very important. So important. Quotes a verse in in Genesis. The verse juxtaposes, two juxtaposed verses. One verse says, don't murder. The next verse says, have children. It says, well, you see the Torah puts the verse of not to murder next to the verse of have children. It's kind of hinting at you. If you don't have children, it's like you're murdering. Wow, so severe. And then it quotes another opinion. That takes the same verse, but it says, don't murder because God made man in the image of God. And it says, aha, you see that there's another juxtaposition. It says, have children right next to him, talking about the image of God. If someone doesn't have children, they're reducing from the image of God. So important. Comes along by Nazai, and he has the most radical position. His position is, if someone refrains from procreation, it's as if they did both. They're, they're It's also like they spill blood and like they reduced from the image of God. That's a debate that the Talmud records, but then there's a postscript to the debate. They said to him, you know, some people give very nice, flowery speeches, but also practice what they preach. There are others that don't give flowery speeches, but they also practice what others preach. You are coming with the most radical position, the most stringent position vis-a-vis the importance of procreation. And you're a lifelong bachelor. How do you explain the dissonance between what you're preaching and your, your choice to not get married? So he responds, what can I do? I'm helpless. My heart yearns only for Torah. And consequently, I cannot get married. I cannot have children. The world will have its continuity via others. Others will have children, the world will still have its continuity. That's a very interesting uh, teaching that we find about him. Now, we also find in the Tosafos commentary, he brings evidence from other places in the Talmud that he was actually married. In fact, he was married to the daughter of Rabbi Akiva, so his, his half-teacher, half-colleague, he married him. He married his daughter, but they got divorced. It seems like he's saying it's not possible for him to to get I married. Mean, he couldn't do it. He couldn't harbor these two loves: the love of Torah and the love of a family. He couldn't do it, and therefore, even though he was so stringent on the importance of marriage and, and procreation, he himself just was was unable to. Now, it's interesting: the Rambam, when he talks about the laws of procreation, he actually carves out an exception: the Ben Azai exception. He says, "Well, everyone has to do. Everyone has to engage in procreation, but if you love Torah." so much, and you study Torah nonstop, like Ben-Azai, that you cleave to it all your days, then you, there's no sin. It doesn't say it's okay, but there's no sin. There's no sin of refraining from procreation if you're as in love with Torah as Ben-Azai was provided, that your Yetzara, that your evil inclination, that your lust doesn't control you. But if your lust does control you, then even if you are as studious, as assiduous as Benazai, still you have to get married, even if you have lots of children, because otherwise you could go down the path of, of sin. So that's, that's the, uh, the interesting little background that we find about uh, Benazai, that he was so in love with, with Torah study that there was just no room for, for anything else in his life. In fact, when he died, the eulogy that was given to him by the sages was that Butlu Hashakdanim, Shakdanim means the diligent, assiduous scholars. There's no more after Benazai passed away. There's no more after Benazai passed away. Now, it is interesting that, you know, this, this whole idea that Benazai is saying, you know he doesn't want to get married, procreate because he just can't. He loves Torah. It's kind of bizarre. Is there any other mitzvah? They say, "Well, I love Torah so much, I'm not praying." Well, I love Torah so much, I'm not putting on in We don't have this exception for seemingly any other mitzvah. What is going on? I saw some of the commentaries say something interesting. They say that we know we exist on two planes. We have the body and the soul, and they're, of course, fused together, even though they're opposites. Of course, the soul comes from heaven. It's eternal. It's spiritual. And the body comes from the earth, and it's ephemeral, and it's, it's here for, we're here, we have it for a little bit, and it starts to decompose. It stops working. The soul lives on. And that, of course, that's the conflict that undergirds our life. That's why we have Torah, to kind of make sense of the confusion that, that we're comprised of. But one of the fundamental principles of, of Jewish philosophy is that these two are mutually exclusive. So, of course, we, we were conflicted. Maybe we're 50-50 to begin with. But if we choose to favor one over the other, necessarily the influence of the other one is going to diminish. Meaning, if we promote our physical self, it doesn't mean to be healthy and fit. It means if we view ourselves, our identity, as being a body and, and focusing solely on our legacy, so to speak, on terra firma, necessarily we're going to diminish from our legacy of our soul, from the identity of the soul, from the power, from the vigor of our soul. You, you can't have both simultaneously. You could have both provided that that there's an arrangement to the two, i.e., you know, the the, the body is the steward of the soul. It's it's helpful. It's, it's helping promote the agenda of the soul. That's okay. In fact, that's good. That's the, the beautiful fusion. But… If someone says, I'm going to view my body as an end unto its own, necessarily the role that their soul plays within them is going to be decreased. It's going to be diminished. And therefore the Talmud says, the more someone immerses themselves in Torah, the more their soul gets empowered. But what happens together with that, in tandem with their soul, getting empowered, their body and its vigor, gets diminished. So one of the commentaries wants to suggest that he was so immersed in Torah, he was actually physiologically incapable of having children because the vigor of his body diminished, and therefore he wasn't just like some sort of excuse, oh, I love this, I can't love that also. He was just physiologically incapable of having children because of his immersion in the Torah and what it did to his soul and consequently what it did to his body and, and his, and his, and his capacity to, to perform, so to speak, that he was just not able to do it. He, he tried, he got married and it just, he wasn't able to uphold his responsibilities, uh, as, as a husband. And therefore he wasn't blamed at all for this and he had to get divorced. And therefore there is this carve out specifically in this mitzvah now I want to add and I'm not going to answer questions about this but I want to add that the Kabbalists they talk about Ben Azai at great length and they talk about the fact that he did manage to procreate via his Torah what they say is that there's two ways to procreate there's the physical procreation. There's the spiritual procreation. Almost as if there's two organs in man that can create new souls. There's of course the genitalia, and then there's the mouth. The mouth is the conduit through through where a Torah could could go through. And there's a, again advanced couples. The idea. I made a huge mistake in talking about this. I realize okay. I'm too dependent, now. But the, but the, the, the conduit of Torah can also create new worlds and new souls. And in fact, our sages tell us that what Adam really wanted was the capacity to be a creator, not just of the lower level, of the higher level too. That's why he did a sin. Because he wanted to get the opportunity for the greater output of creating worlds on the higher, on the, on the higher plane. So what the capitalists tell us is that Benazai, was a reincarnation of Shammai. Shammai was the one who pushed away the converts, and therefore he came back as Ben Azai, and via his Torah created souls of the converts. And I'm not answering any questions about this, and I regret mentioning it. Now Ben Azai was the standard of scholarship for years to come. He's even after he passed away, even you know hundreds <laughs> of years later, when scholars would compare themselves, and when like the the highest standard of someone who was such a uh, a voracious, uh, scholar, they would say, behold, I am like Benazai. Behold, this person is like Benazai. Even, even in Babylon, even in the, in the third and fourth centuries, so hundreds of years after Benazai has passed, when they would talk about in Babylon of someone who was a tremendous scholar, who knows everything, is able to grind all of Torah together, in the words of the, of the Talmud, is able to uproot mountains, they would compare them to, to Benazai. And now there's all kinds of stories that we find in the Talmud about his relationship with Rabbi Akiva. For example, we're told that he regretted not studying sufficiently under the tutelage of Rabbi Akiva. These two were like the two greatest scholars. And Ben Azai acknowledged, as we'll see in a bit, he acknowledged the the primacy of Rabbi Akiva's scholarship and breadth of knowledge and ability. And he regretted that he didn't study under him sufficiently. There's also a a very troubling episode of how Ben-Azai studied from Rabbi Akiva. We'll put that on the side. But there's a very unusual statement that Ben-Azai makes. It's recorded in the Talmud, in the Book of Bechoros, page 58. He says that all the sages of the Jewish people are compared to me as if they were a garlic peel seems to be very dismissive of all these sages, with the exception of this bald one. And who's the bald one? So says Rashi, that's Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was bald. And in fact, it tells us that there's another sage in the Talmud. His name is Rabbi Yehoshua ben Karcha. Rabbi Yehoshua, the son of Karcha. What kind of name is Karcha? The Hebrew word for bald is kireach. And therefore, when it says Rabbi Shua ben Karcha, it's actually the Rabbi Shua, the son of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was the bald one, and therefore he's Rabbi Shua ben Karcha. That's what actually tells us. A little bit odd. So you look at the Tosvos, and they say, wait a minute, this is not how Ben Azai would talk about someone as revered as, as Rabbi Akiva. He would call them the, the bald one. Seems very, very odd to have, to have sages talking about each other in seemingly a derogatory way. So instead, they want to suggest he's not talking about Rabbi Kiva, he's talking about Rabbi Elizabeth Azaria, a different one of the sages that we mentioned in the past. He was the one at the age of 18 who was nominated to replace Rabbi after Rabbi was deposed before he was subsequently reinstated. We've spoken about him at length in the past. The obvious question, of course, on Tosfos is, well, the whole problem is that he's speaking derogatorily about the sages. So you say, oh, it's not Rabbi Kiva. Oh, it is Rabbi Elizabeth Azaria. You haven't solved the problem. He's still speaking derogatorily about one of the sages. So one of the answers was interesting. For Blessed Azaria, it was a compliment because it was highlighting the fact that he was so young. His face was bald. He was like a little kid. He was a teenager. He didn't have much of a beard. And we know the story. The story was that when he was nominated, he instantly overnight became very old. His wife told him, "He's like, hey, how could you be the leader? Look at you. You look like a little kid." And the next day he woke up and he had a, like a white beard and he was he looked he looked apart as well. And so, one of the commentaries suggests that, well, for him, it's not such a, it's not such, a, it's not, it's not such a derogatory statement because it was highlighting the fact that he had these unusual changes to him. Now, the Kabbalists, the aforementioned Kabbalists, they say like this: We know one of the pillars of of Kabbalistic thought is that everything that exists in in this world, in the physical world, in the world that we're currently occupying, is actually a parallel and a reflection. Of what's happening in the spiritual world. That's a, one of the, the bedrock concepts of Kabbalah. And in fact, every part of the human body is a reflection of something spiritual. And therefore, anytime you see the Torah, any, any references to people's physical body, it's actually highlighting what the, the spiritual ramifications are of that thing. So, for example, it talks about. Asaph, he had red hair. Again, it's, it seems to us that's a, that's an unusual or unnecessary triviality about Asaph. Who cares what color his hair was? But of course you go to the Kabbalah and it's like, well, red. Symbolizes blood, which symbolizes judgment, and there's a lot of symbolism there. And of course, Ace another episode we're told about him is when they, he, he barters his f- firstborn right for, for red soup, not just regular soup. And that's why he's called Edom. The name of his nation is the Edomites. Edom was the Hebrew word for red. Again, a lot of implication or, or insinuations in the Torah that there is m- deeper meaning behind these stories. He's also very hairy. And we find out. In, in the Kabbalistic sources that the, the hair on the head symbolizes judgment, whereas the hair on the face, the beard, symbolizes uh, mercy, more positive insinuations. And therefore what the Kabbalists tell us is that when it's talking, actually, he's actually giving a great compliment to Rabbi Akiva by telling him that he's bald, what it's telling us is that he was someone who, via his tremendous spiritual prowess, he was able to uproot all the negativity that he had within him. So it's not, he's not giving commentary on his hairstyle. That's not the point. He's giving commentary on his tremendous spiritual accomplishments that he was kind of bald, i.e., he was someone who got rid of all the negativity, all the judgment, so to speak, that is symbolized by the, head, and the hair on the head, he got rid of that. Again, advanced idea that uh, the Kabbalists tell us about this particular exchange to demonstrate that what ben was saying about Arbitiva was, in fact, even though it seems like a, a silly thing to say, it's a silly thing to notice, you know, the sages are, and, and it seems also derogatory, but really, maybe, at least again, the Kabbalistic level, he is invoking what is um, what is meant on a deeper level by uh, by this by this statement? Now, there's another teaching in the midrash, a very again deep idea that we find about Ben Again, it gives us a sense, a little bit about his Torah prowess and um, his connection. I would say to to the spiritual and the Kabbalistic and the esoteric. It says that he was studying to such a degree that there was a, a fire encircling him now in fact we find that in several places in, in 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 the literature the Midrashic literature about sages that were studying and there was fire surrounding them engulfed they were engulfed by fire which is almost like a like a reincarnation or reinvention of uh, of Sinai a anyway, you know, Sinai there's a lot of fire there the implication here in the sources is that if someone could recreate the experience of Sinai right away they'll have everything else that comes with it okay. So ben is studying Torah and there's fire around him. So right away, all the students run to Rebekah and they tell him what happened. That ben is studying and there's a fire surrounding them. So right away, Rebekah goes to investigate. And he goes to speak to Ben-Azai. And he says, I heard about you. That you were studying and there was a fire surrounding you. Is that true? And he says, yes, that's true. So Rebekah responds to him. I think I know what you were studying. You must have been studying the Ma'asem Erkava. Well, What's Ma'asem Erkava? Ma'asem Kava is one of the names in classical Talmudic literature about Kabbalah. Advanced Kabbalah. And it's a reference for the beginning of Ezekiel talks about, uh, you know, God's chariot. Very advanced stuff. You really you clearly don't know what's going on. But it's, it's almost immersion in, in Kabbalistic theology. That if you really understand it, you're able to kind of do all kinds of powerful things. That's probably what you were studying," says Rabbi Tevis. And I responds, "No, I was studying in the following manner: I was stringing together words of Torah together with words of the prophets, and for prophets, I was stringing that to the writings. And the the words of Torah were so delightful as they were at Sinai, and therefore they were as joyous as they were when they were given. And just like when they were given, they were given with fire, so too, when they're being revisited, there is, again, the experience of fire. That's what the Talmud says. Now, the insight here is that what Benaziah is telling us is that we don't need to study Kabbalah to connect to God via Torah on the highest level. There's another way of doing it, what he calls stringing together various parts of Torah, and that too could evoke this powerful fire. My grandfather, blessed memory, when he quoted this, he he, he said, he says, our connection to Torah is, you know, via fits and starts or via slivers. Torah, of course, is very vast. Arucha me'aretz or chav miniam, the verse compares it to as broad as the sea, as deep as the ocean as broad as the land it's it's yeah you know, there's no end to it and of course you know we try to study as much as we can so if we if we have the privilege of of studying some talmud it opens up our eyes to the great vistas of talmud but even then we study one page of talmud which for a beginner might take a few months to finish to really understand and that's not even getting to the commentaries but again there's 2711 pages of the talmud So multiply that experience of studying one page of Talmud and to really know it, to really understand the intricacies and to get into the commentaries and to go to the next level. What an amazing thing. Multiply that thousandfold, two thousandfold. What an amazing world. But then again, that's just the Talmud. What about the Sefra, Sifri, the Mechilta, the Torah, the What about all the Midrash's? What about all the Halacha? What about all the things that are part of the the, Muser, the ethical teachings of the Torah it's endless it's not just oh you know I, I actually I do remember this story or I did read through the Bible once it's, it's everything and most of us our experience is a little snap here a little snip there maybe we'll study some Mishnah 63 books of Mishnah a lot to do and maybe we had the privilege of studying some Talmud maybe we've, we've opened up the Rambam there's 14 books of the Rambam maybe we've had some experience What he's telling us is that to really understand Torah, to really get a sense of of what the Almighty gave us, to get a sense of that, you have to really connect to it like Benazai did. You have to really see it all. When someone has a sliver, a view of a sliver of Torah, what they're seeing is a small drop in the ocean. And a drop in the ocean is not impressive. It's not as impressive. You're not getting the Sinai experience. With that, of course, it's amazing. You know, one drop of, one drop of Torah is amazing, incredible. We're not going to discount that, of course. And this is not coming to, to denigrate us, of course, because, you know, the, the expectation of us becoming like Benazai are nil, right? That's not, that's not something feasible for us. But the idea of the story is that what he's telling us is to, to get a sense of what Torah really is, to see it all, to have it there in front of you, to have the, 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 Torah and the Tanakh, and we see, by the way, when our sages, when they quote scripture, like the level of understanding that they had of scripture is, is startling. It's shocking. We could have it in front of us and not see what they see. We read a verse and you just open up the Rashi commentary. Of course, Rashi's a thousand years after Benazai. You open a Rashi, you're like, oh, I didn't see that. Oh, I didn't see that. Oh, whoa, I how did I miss this obvious thing? And that's one verse. And then, you know, all of Torah, all of Tanakh, all of Talmud, everything is open before them. That's a connection to Torah. And even without the the, the, the Kabbalah, without resorting to the esoterica, the Nazai was, was able to see all of Torah in such a way to really understand Torah in its essence of what it really is. And that process, that experience mimicked Sinai. One one final biographical note about Ben Azai before we get to the actual content of his teaching. Uh, We mentioned last week there were four people who entered the Pardes, who entered the orchard, and one of them last week talked about Ben Zoma. He he went crazy. Ben Azai was the one who looked too close and he died. And it seems like that Ben Azai was someone when he saw that, he's like, I'm in. He, he he chose consciously to depart from this world and to embrace that world. And we see that's kind of his life pattern. He was someone who wasn't really connected to this world. He couldn't get to this world. He couldn't get married, couldn't have children. He was already, even when he was here, he was kind of living in the spiritual world. And therefore, he has a chance to kind of jump ship and he does it. Okay, so let's get into the content of, of his teaching. He begins... By telling us a piece of advice, we should run, we should pursue even a minor mitzvah, as we would a major mitzvah, and we should flee from sin. So we're doing a lot of running. We're running to something, running away from something. And then he adds, for a mitzvah, that gets another mitzvah. There's a reward of the mitzvahs of another mitzvah. You drag one mitzvah with another one. And conversely, with sin, it's the same thing in the opposite direction. So I think this idea or this architecture that he presents for us, It's a fundamental bedrock principle of, of Jewish philosophy. How so? If you look at what he's telling us, he's telling us to run. Run to something, run away from something. Pursue the mitzvah, chase it, run after it, flee from sin. What it's telling us is that a mitzvah, is fleeing from us. To get it, you have to chase it down. You have to pursue. You have to run after it. It's also telling us that a sin is chasing us. To escape, you need to flee. So you have to run actively towards the mitzvah. You have to run actively away from the sin. Meaning, if you are stationary, then the sin pursues you. It gets you. It catches you, and the mitzvah gets further and further away from you. The architecture that he's presenting to us is mitzvahs fleeing from us and sins pursuing us, chasing us. Now, the obvious question is, why? Why is, why is the sin chasing us and the mitzvah running away from us? So one of the commentaries here, says a fundamental insight, it's the, uh, the Ruach we we quote it uh, almost every, every, every week. The Ruach Haim from Rab Chaim Velazhner, the primary disciple of the Gona Vilna. He says that the way the Almighty set up our world and our role, the role of the humans to play in the world is that we have something called free will. We have the opportunity to choose one or the other, to choose the body, to choose the soul, to veer towards the mitzvahs, to veer towards the sins. And that has to be balanced. If it's not balanced, if the Almighty tips the scale, then it's not free will anymore. There has to be a role that we have to play. Now, we could argue, of course, about how much Latitude do we actually have? That's, of course, a subject of, of much debate and much, uh, analysis to try to understand on a very, um, on a very particular level what really is within our hands and what's not within our hands. But we do agree there's something that's in our hands, something that's not in our hands. What's in our hands is because we have free will. It's balanced. Whatever is balanced, there's opportunity for us to have our own say in, in our, in our destiny. Says the Ruach Chaim, if It was balanced in any other way if either the mitzvah was running to us or the sin was running away from us, or even if both of them were running away from us or both of them were running to us, it would be imbalanced. And therefore, in order for it to be balanced, it has to be that the mitzvah is fleeing from us, we have to chase it down, and the sin is pursuing us, we have to flee from it, we have to run away. That's what he says. And that's the only way to have balance. There's two obvious questions. Question number one is that how does Benazai tell us that mitzvahs are running away from us? We have to chase it down. It seems to imply that there's no allure of mitzvah. Mitzvah's not pulling us. But doesn't a mitzvah kind of have a certain attraction? Doesn't doing something good, doing something righteous, doing something kind, doing something benevolent, doesn't that have its own attraction? Question A. And then this question could be bolstered by a citation from the Messiah el Path of Jashar Ramchal, who compares mitzvah, the attraction of mitzvah, to a magnet, which again implies that We we do have some innate magnetic attraction to mitzvahs. Yet here it says that not only we don't have an attraction to mitzvah, the mitzvah is kind of repelled by us. It goes the opposite direction. So which is it? Do we have a magnetic attraction to mitzvahs? Or is it running away from us? Question A. Question B, can we have a simple way to balance the two sides? Can we say a mitzvah is running away from us, a sin is running away from us? Or conversely, both of them are chasing us, and then we have to choose which one, to, which one, which one to opt for. Both the mitzvah arrives at our doorstep, and the sin arrives at our doorstep. We get to choose, free choice. Why does it have to be balanced in such a way where the mitzvah running run away from us and the sin is pursuing us? That's the two questions that my grandfather, blessed memory, began one of his essays with. I want to share this uh, the 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 way he works through this this subject. He establishes, based upon the Talmud, the following principle. The Talmud tells us that the attraction or the, shall we say, the lust that men have towards women, the Talmud tells us that is the decree of a king, which means God decreed that... Men should have this desire and this attraction. Of course we know that if we didn't have that, it's quite likely the world will not have its continuity per- perpetuation. But that's the idea that there's a decree. What's what Tom what was implying is that without this decree, there wouldn't be this attraction. There has to be this decree, but it's a decree. If there was no decree, there would be no attraction. And of course, that's not limited to this particular kind of attraction. There's all kinds of attractions that we have, things that we're drawn towards, and we feel sometimes that we're drawn to the point of necessity. We can't live without them. And everyone has the things that they're attracted to, and they sometimes can kind of imagine other people attracted to other things and not attracted to what they're attracted to. But again, the the, the idea, the principle one is that. The Torah is telling us that the drives that we have are decrees. Without the decree, remove the decree, and the drive goes away, and the pursuit doesn't make any sense. Point A. Point B, we find a citation in the prayers of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the idea of evil being dispelled in messianic times, like smoke, like a wisp of smoke, no no substance, lacking substance. It's just some sort of smoke and mirrors, literally, if we say smoke and mirrors. We pray on Rosh Hashanah that in the Messianic times, God will come and and banish and dispel all the wickedness like smoke. Yet we find the very next statement is that God will remove... The evil dominion. So again, we have this balance or this almost dichotomy of these attractions that we're talking about that are a dominion. It's like a kingdom. In fact, one of the motifs of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is the idea that there is this pitiful kingdom. this this pitiful king and then there's the ultimate king and these two kings are jockeying for control. And the pitiful king is the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. It's the foreign god masquerading as a, as a real power. Really, it's all smoke and mirrors, but it's masquerading as a real power. It's a pitiful king, and we're trying to get rid of it because it's it's really in control. And to the degree that it's in control, the true king, God, is not in control. Again, that's one of the motifs throughout the whole Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur prayers, which are upcoming, of course, in our calendar. Yet we say that this king that has total dominion it's really built on a house of cards. It's really built on no substance. It's only the decree of God that the pitiful king has any power. Because the desires of the Sahara or the agenda of the Sahara is really built on no substance, the only way to balance the scale is by adding the decree of God, so to speak, adding the attraction, having the fact that sin is chasing us. We have a mitzvah. The mitzvah does have true substance. It does really resonate with your soul. If they were both equally attractive, everyone would choose the thing that gives them that meaningful, ultimate pleasure that connects them to their soul, to their true identity. And therefore, if things were balanced with respect to the attraction, no one would ever sin. The deep idea that Benazza is conveying here. A mitzvah is something which is much more attractive on a fundamental substantive level than the sin. The sin is just the smoke and mirrors. And therefore, you have to increase its desire for it to be fair. And therefore, the, the two sides, essentially, the way it balances out is the mitzvah, is a substantial experience, but it's fleeing from you. you know, you're not attracted to it initially. It does have a draw to it. There is a magnetic connection that we have to the mitzvah. It does resonate with our soul, but no one lusts for the mitzvah. You don't lust after it. It's running away from you. Whereas the sin, it's the empty calories, it's a thing which has the pizzazz, it has the allure, it's chasing you, but ultimately the payout has no substance. And that is the balance that he's presenting to us. And then he goes on to say, my grandfather does, in amazing insight. I just, this, this jumps out of the page to me when I read it. He, he says that I, uh, I read it. I read something in the newspaper and it really hit me. What did he read in the newspaper? He read in the newspaper that the Russian astronauts were in the spaceship for nine months. And they were so high up that they managed to get out of the Earth's gravitational pull and therefore they're floating around in their spaceship without any gravity. And then they got back down and they were fine after they reconnected. They came back to Earth and they were fine. But they were there was this point where they were able to live in this way outside of the Earth's uh, gravitational pull. So he says, this is exactly how it works. When someone connects to spirituality, even though, of course, the Earth has this magnetic pull, the Earth, in this in this example, this analogy, is a reference to the things that are earthly, the body things, the agenda of of our yitzhara. Yes, it does have this attraction. Yes, the sin is chasing us. We have to flee from it. But when we connect to The higher realms, we connect to our soul, we're kind of taking the, the space shuttle out of Earth's orbit, out of the magnetic field of attraction of the Eight Sahara, and we're able to kind of float in this world without the, without the gravity pulling us. And that's what he's, that's the essence of the Mishnah here. He begins setting up the infrastructure of the conflict. Sin is chasing you. You have this attraction to the sin. And of course, the payout is pitiful. It's it's the pitiful king. It doesn't doesn't really give you that deep meaning once you're done with it. On the other hand, you have the mitzvah, which is running away from you. It doesn't have that allure, but it has the substance. But it's possible to live on the higher plane when you have this process of the mitzvah beginning a mitzvah. When you, again, are steadily pivoting towards the spiritual, you can actually intervene with this Dynamics. You connect to the holiness, and that's actually going to influence the layout, the breakdown of of these competing worldviews vying for your attention and for your interest. My grandfather um, actually quotes a phenomenon wherein smokers—what happens with when someone is addicted to smoking, but they're also fully Torah observant? What are they doing on Shabbos? You're not allowed to smoke a cigarette on Shabbos. It's one of the third-round categories of ward is making a fire. What do they do? So, of course, this is a, it's, it's a great study. What do religious smokers do? They're addicted. You try to tell them to stop on a Tuesday, go a whole Tuesday without smoking. So I know my, my, my father, he quit, uh, when he was, uh, 50, I think he quit smoking for years, for decades, he would smoke two patches a day. It's a heavy smoker, and then he quit. But I remember, I remember Shabbos afternoon he was pacing. <laughs> you know, at that point already he he kind of needed it. But it's an amazing thing. Someone who's addicted, they, they cannot go a day without 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 smoking. The wake of the morning, got to have a couple of cigarettes again. We're talking about forty cigarettes over the course of a day, and comes along Shabbos nothing. They don't smoke. How do you explain that? So my grandfather explains that is that. Shabbos is called Shabbos Kodesh, the Holy Shabbos. When someone connects to something holy, it elevates them. It makes them go into the proverbial spaceship. They're above the the desires of the physical, and therefore they don't even desire it. That's an amazing thing for us to study that someone could literally experience this mini spaceship every week. They're connecting something to something holy. It becomes a real reality in their lives and the thought of smoking a cigarette is totally anathema and therefore they don't even desire it. They're ascending above their desires. So again, this is a very um, advanced idea but it gets to the heart of of, of our life. That's what Benazai is starting off. This is the beginning of his teaching. The beginning of his teaching is the, the, the normal, the natural, the default layout the default uh, architecture of our conflict in life is that there are some things that are drawing us near. They're chasing us. We feel an impulse. And the only way for us to, to avoid sin is by running away. And the reason why it has to be like that is because they really are not selling something substantive. And therefore you have to, you have to resort to shtick, to gimmicks in order to, to get someone to buy into that. And then you have the mitzvah, which really does have substance, but it's running away from us. It does not have that allure. There is no decree of God. This artificial drive to mitzvah, but it does have substance. If you chase it down, you get it. You can connect to it. But if you do nothing, then you're going to default to this world where the sin is going to overcome you and the mitzvah will be lost to you because it's running away from you. Benazza continues by telling us that a mitzvah drags with it, it, leads with, it leads another mitzvah, and the reward of a mitzvah is another mitzvah. And a sin, it's the opposite. One sin drags another sin, and one sin, the reward of one sin is another sin. Now, the obvious question that all the commentaries ask is, both of these statements are that a mitzvah begets another mitzvah. It says, first, a mitzvah drags another mitzvah, and the reward of one mitzvah is another mitzvah. And on the flip side with the sin, it's the same thing. A sin begets another sin. And it says it in two ways. A sin drags another sin with it, and the reward for a sin is another sin. So the obvious question is, why does you have to say it twice? Why the redundancy? Also, the question is, you know, if you, re- if you read it simply, it seems like the reward for a mitzvah is another mitzvah, which – could imply, if, if, if misread, that there is no other reward aside from the mitzvah itself. So if someone does a million mitzvahs, they have reward of the next million, but is there any other reward that's external to the mitzvahs? We believe, of course, in the concept of reward and punishment. Is Manasseh coming to repudiate that? No one would suggest that. So what does this mean that a mitzvah he gets another mitzvah and the reward for the mitzvah, one mitzvah is another mitzvah? So Rebbein Yoni here has a groundbreaking commentary uh, this Mishnah, and again, he expands it to very central concepts of Jewish philosophy. We know that we exist on the body plane and the soul plane. And like we've mentioned numerous times, both the body and the soul, they mirror each other. So for example, the Kabbalists tell us that there's 613 parts of the body and there's 613 parts of the soul. And the analogy is that you have a, you have a garment, and the garment is tailored to the specifications of the person that's wearing the garment. So the body is the garment for the soul. The soul is really who we are, and the body is just the garment. And therefore, if the soul has got six or thirteen parts, the body also has to have such or thirteen parts. And they're parallel to each other. And of course, the mitzvahs, they're also six or thirteen mitzvahs because each mitzvah is connected to a certain part of a person's body and of a person's soul. And the function of the mitzvah is to shift a certain part of a person's identity from being body to being soul. That's, in a nutshell, a very advanced idea about the role the mitzvah plays in in altering, in reshaping a person's identity. Now, we begin life, like we said, the mitzvah is running away from us. The sin is chasing us. But a mitzvah, of course, is... Described in Jewish literature as food for the soul. But it's also described in Jewish literature as medicine for the person. And the question is, which one is it? You know, food, everyone needs food. Medicine is only for the sick. How could a mitzvah be described as both nourishment and medicine for the ill? The way Raymond explains this mission is going to give us an insight. When it tells us that mitzvos are medicine for the person, it's implying that the person is sick. Why is the person sick? The person's sick because they're not identifying with their soul. They're not tending to it. Just like you have a sick person who loses their appetite, and you need, might need to force feed someone because otherwise they'll die, but they have zero desire for the food. It's obviously it's a it's a, it's a crisis because you need the food, or else you'll cease operation. You will cease operating. Similarly, we're sick. Because we begin life and the mitzvahs run away from us. We have zero desire for it. Or maybe we have a little bit of a desire for it. Or maybe our desire for it is also rooted in the Yetzirah. It's a problem. We're sick. Comes along Torah and says, okay, let's force feed mitzvahs. Just like you have a sick person, you have to give medicine. Torah is medicine. But Torah is also food for the soul. And what happens when you give Torah and mitzvahs to the soul? What happens to the soul? It gets, It gets empowered. It gets strengthened. And when it gets strengthened, it begins to capture a larger share of his identity. So he starts developing a little bit of a taste for mitzvahs. Those things that were foreign, those things that were running away from him, the things that he wasn't coveting, he wasn't desiring, now he begins to develop a little taste for it. And then what happens? You have this compounding effect. The more mitzvahs you do, the more you're feeding your soul, and the more your illness is going away, because the illness was your lack of desire for mitzvos, your lack of appetite for mitzvos, and now you're developing an appetite as you're feeding your soul. So that's going to again compound upon itso- uh, itself that your 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 initial foray perhaps into mitzvos is that of medicine. You got to just force feed it, but the result is that it's food, and the result is you need less of the medicine and you need more of the food. And This is the virtuous cycle. Of of mitzvos, Rabbi Yona says a very powerful idea here. He says when we say a mitzvah, but you get the mitzvah, it it occurs in two different ways. There is the reward for a mitzvah, and there is a mitzvah dragging on the mitzvah with it. The reward for the mitzvah is a spiritual thing. God says, you know what? If someone puts themselves out there, they choose to adopt the mitzvahs, they choose to embrace the mitzvahs. I'm going to avail for them in that mitzvah. That's kind of a supernatural way of mitzvahs begetting mitzvahs. But there's also a very natural way that mitzvah engenders mitzvah. Mitzvah A brings about mitzvah B. Why? When a person does mitzvah A, they are changing the internal composition of who they are. They are augmenting the role of the soul within them. And therefore the soul and the thing that it naturally desires, those things become now more natural. And therefore, by feeding the soul with one mitzvah, I am making the next mitzvah more desirous to me because I'm I'm healing my ailment, my pathology, my lack of appetite for mitzvahs by now increasing the role that, that the soul captures within me. And now the next mitzvah is more desirous and thus easier to do because now my soul is capturing a larger share of my identity. Fantastic. Again, it's a little bit complicated That's a very powerful insight that mitzvot, they operate on two fronts. They're like the medicine, the miracle drug, and they're like the superfood for our soul. As an aside, in my book that I'm going to be publishing, God willing, soon, there's a chapter called Miracle Drugs and Superfoods, and it's about this very advanced, very powerful idea that he is sharing with us in this in this mission. I want to add one more point. Again, this is – the time that we're allowed to, con- to cover the mitzvah is less than what it's truly due. We have to acknowledge that. It's true with every mission that we cover. Um, but there's another critical idea that's very important to share. One of the motifs that our sages tell us about mitzvahs is there's 613 of them, and it parallels like the 613 parts of your body. And it also parallels 613 parts of our soul. But Naza here is telling us to run to chase, to pursue, even the minor mitzvah. This hierarchy of mitzvos it's our creation. We're like, well, this one's really important. This one's eh, less important. He says Benazai, you're supposed to chase them all. All of them, all of them matter. You have to pursue them all, even the more minor mitzvos. But if we extend his analogy to what our sages compare mitzvos to, we can make the following point. Just as perhaps with mitzvahs, there's a hierarchy, with the 613 parts that organs and sinews that comprise our body, there's also a hierarchy. There's some mitzvahs that you kind of need to have spiritual life. Other mitzvahs are, are nice. But we think they're nice and maybe unnecessary. Comes up a says, no, no, they're very necessary. Perhaps we could say the following statement. You need a heart, a brain, a pancreas, a liver, To live. Do you really need two pinkies? You kind of can survive without them. All ten toes? Do you really need them? No. You can live without them. But who exactly is volunteering to part with them? Is there anyone here that's saying, Well, the left pinky, it's kind of extra. Do we really need it? It doesn't really have much of a utility. I could do without it. No one's saying that. And the reason why is because we we view ourselves as not just a bunch of limbs that were cobbled together. We're one entity. We're one entity. And therefore we're not willing to part with any parts of that. Cause, you know, this, my pinky, yes, it's not as important as my liver, but, you know, God forbid if, if, if it became gained, uh, greenness, uh, I, I would, you have to amputate it. But no one's willing to voluntarily, voluntarily part with it, right? Mitzvahs are the same thing. They are creating our spiritual avatar in all above. They are as essential, all of them, to, to form our identity, our spiritual identity. And no one's willing to part with a finger. No one's willing to even have one of their finger nails pried off. No one. Because we we recognize insti- instinctively, this is just part of who we are. Banzai is encouraging us to, to realize what mitzvos really are. Mitzvos are our tools to empower our spiritual selves, our eternal selves, and all six hundred thirteen parts of our eternal selves. And just as the physical, every part is valuable, every part is important. We want to preserve the well-being of even our minor limbs and our minor organs, as we do our major organs and, ma- and, and major and major limbs. So too, we should treat this. Once you recognize. The value and the the role the mitzvos play, indeed, it makes a lot of sense to not assign a hierarchy. Yes, there is a hierarchy, but so what? It's it's who I am. The mitzvos are empowering who I am. This is my soul. This is my eternity. Is given life, is infused with vitality with the mitzvos, and therefore all of them matter. Yes, some of them are more important. Some of them have a much more stringency. So what? I'm not willing to forfeit the, the, the tea, I shouldn't forfeit the mitzvah that I assumed to be not as important. Again, very powerful Mishnah. And we're going to get another one, uh, the next Mishnah from Ben Azai, a second teaching from him. another very big idea, something which could be viewed in a more narrow sense. And of course, we're going to try to see the big picture that he's, that he is creating for us, the, the, the tapestry of the, of the message, not just the, uh, the tree, but the forest. Um, But again, an an idea here, um, lots of ideas, but central ideas to, to the nature of the conflict of our lives. The mitzvah is running away from us, at least by default. We have to chase it down. We have to develop a taste for it. We have to become like those astronauts who are going to live above the lusts and the allures and the excitement of the sins that are chasing us and realize what transformation happens within us when we embrace the mitzvot, how it changes the future events. God's going to intervene. He's going to throw more mitzvahs at us. But naturally, we will also change. The ratio of soul to Yetzirah operating within us is going to change. And naturally, the world will readjust as a result of our newfound identity newfound self.